Hey everyone, good to see you. If you're new to Mountain, I just want to say today how glad I am that you're giving us a listen and spending some time with us. Uh, Mountain's just a great place. Maybe you know that already, but it's just incredible people and incredible things that God is doing through us. And it's filled with people just like you who want to get their life in sync with God through a relationship with Jesus. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I want to say this before we get started as well, because I, I believe someone's listening and you're sensing that the Lord is drawing you to take a spiritual step toward him and that you need to mark that in some special way. In a time of social distancing, you're ready to say, Lord, I wanna be closer to you. And if that's you, uh, I wanna encourage you to take that step. And for some of you, I believe you're being called to be baptized, just like the followers of Jesus did in the Bible and like we've done for 2,000 years. We've got a super special time set up to do that. It's coming September 5, and it's all super safe. It's outdoors, and you can invite friends and family, and we'll be there to support you and help you take that step toward Christ. So let's all take a step in time of social distancing toward God. And if you need to be baptized, man, register online or just show up. We'll take care of you. Just this week, I heard from two friends, and one said, you know what, Ben, I've had to stop listening to the news programs. I used to listen to a lot of talk radio, political radio in the truck, and at night I'd watch more news, and on my phone I'd be checking more, and it just got me so angry and so riled up, and just kind of got me dark and ugly inside. I just needed to step away. Another said, um, Ben, I'm shutting down my Facebook account for a while. I said, was it the cat videos or, or what? He says, no. He says, I, I love being in touch with my family and friends, but it just seems like so many people are so angry and just yelling all the time and showing disrespect. It's just not a place I can be. It's not good for me anymore. You know, whether, whether we're the ones getting angry ourselves or whether we're just tired of the anger from everyone else, I think we can all relate and it does seem like we're living in the age of outrage, doesn't it? Where everyone's just kind of politicked off, as we've said. And right there in the middle of some of the ugly, um, mean incivility, a lot of Christians are being sucked right in, representing Christ in a way that's just like anything but attractive. And friends, that's a real problem because, trust me, Jesus is attractive. He's winsome and beautiful and compelling and strong and good. And we need to let that Jesus be seen and known. And he intends for that to be seen through us. And that's pretty hard to do in a society that is just screaming at each other and has taught us to scream back. Does it seem to anyone else like we're losing our ability just be kind? <laughs> like to be civil in the public square? Like we need to learn again how to disagree without being so disagreeable. So we're reaching for some help from the scriptures on this, and it turns out there's a ton there. We're calling it the separation of church and hate because there's a, there's a fire burning around this political disagreement we live in, right? There's contentious flames of strife everywhere. Every room you enter, okay? Every conversation you participate in, there's a fire already burning. It might be a small, little contained flame, or it might be a huge, raging, deadly blaze like the Australian bushfires, but you can know this for sure, there's a fire. Now, in your hand, you've got two buckets. Everybody does. you got two buckets. One's red and one's blue. And these don't represent political parties. This red one here, this red one is red because it, it's filled with gasoline. And I don't think I need to tell you what happens when you pour gasoline on a fire, right? 
you, you don't, <laughs> woof, right? Things escalate quickly, right? The fire explodes, destruction follows, people are gonna get hurt. You've got a, a can of gasoline in your hand, right? But in, in the other hand, every one of us has a blue bucket, and the blue bucket is water. And, and when you drizzle that water on the flame, you know what happens. You hear that diffusing sound, right? Right? And that, and that blue bucket is God's spirit calming waters of peace and the drizzle of gentleness. Some of the dousing effects of kindness and civility. That's what we want to talk about today. Some of those things like the graciousness and wisdom that dampen and reduce the heat and the hate. And you've got, you've got both buckets in your hand. And the question is this, when it comes to the fires of political argument, which bucket are you going to pour on the fire? When it comes to this issue of politics where there's already more heat than light, where, where there's already in this age of outrage and these Facebook threads and, and Twitter feeds and Instagram posts, everything's already afire with angry, polarized arguing in the midst of endless denigration of others and shaming and blaming and belittling and cancel culture. In the middle of all the ugly rants where we scorch and burn anyone in our way, where respectful dialogue is displaced by firebombs not meant to really engage others or hear their viewpoint, to help build a stronger us, but merely to win an argument and torch the opposition, and where Christians keep forgetting our identity and our ultimate purpose, and instead, the Lord's church, the precious bride of Christ, is dragged into the flames too often and is offered up on a, as a burnt sacrifice on the flaming altar of outrage. The question is, which bucket are you bringing to that fire? Because every day we choose, we all do, through our attitudes, our actions, and our words. Pouring gasoline on the fire is a bad idea, and we should stop it. When we choose to interact in ways that create explosions that hurt people, when we hurt relationships, when we escalate anger, when we deepen divides in the name of making a point or raising awareness, when we increase anxiety and depression, and when we burn down hope, you're not called to that. And it's inconsistent with the ways of Jesus and the kingdom of God. There's lots of reasons I've mentioned that we should stop pouring gas on the fire, but one of the most important is because it hurts the church. It weakens our witness and it melts our mission and it grieves our God. So we're all bringing something to the fire. And when you, you know, feel so angry, someone posts something, or you feel attacked or offended, the answer isn't to counterattack and reach for that red bucket. We've got to ask, man, what's going to happen if I, if I pour this out? What's the outcome? What's the long-term effect? How will it ultimately impact the cause of Christ? Because that's what our lives are supposed to be about. That's what we meant last week when we talked about our identity. Remember? you got to remember who you are. And if you're a Christian, like in more than name only, then you really want to follow Jesus. That means you got to do a gut check. you got to walk according to the ways of Jesus. Say that. Walk according to the... And then we got to live according to the will of the Spirit. Live according to the... 
And then we got to obey according to the word of God, obey according to the, right. In other words, our identity should indicate our function. Identity leads to function. Who you are determines what you do and how you act. And that's going to determine which bucket you bring to the fire. And so there's these five postures and practices that we're looking at to help us. If you want to be a Jesus follower, you've got to commit yourself to these things. Remember your identity. And we talked about that last week. Today, behave with civility. Number three, demonstrate humility. Number four, strive for unity. And number five, be known for charity. We want to talk about one of the beautiful things that comes out of that blue bucket today, civility. Now, civility, a lot of people think it's just like politeness, like being nice or, you know, minding your manners and having a fake smile on all the time. But it, that's not it at all. Civility comes from the word civis, which means, means citizen. It's a reminder that civility is about being a good and decent person to live with. Like be a good citizen, like learn how to play well in the sandbox, learn how to get along and Share space and realize the whole world isn't about you. Civility is showing respect and regard for other people and behaving in ways that truly promotes the common good. Most of all, civility means accepting that not everyone's going to agree with you on everything, and that's okay, but learning how to disagree while still being respectful and not hateful. That's civility. It doesn't mean stay out of tough issues. It doesn't mean never debate things. It doesn't mean you should never stand up for truth or, or that you'll never disagree with someone. It does, it does mean that how you treat people will be different and look more like Jesus, especially when you disagree. It changes what you say and how you say it and when you say it. It won't require you to always change your position, but it will require you to change your attitude toward people. Because if you want to be a Christian... We've got to remember that the way we speak to and about one another really matters. Civility is not a personality trait, like some people who just hate conflict or whatever. It's not, a, it's, not a, it, it, it's not a personality trait. It's a character trait that comes to a person who's been loved by God and sees the image of God in every person you meet, and so you treat them with dignity and respect and civility, even if they're your enemy. In the New Testament, the writer Paul makes this point to some friends. He's saying, hey, in light of who you are, there are some implications. Your identity is going to lead to some behaviors. Colossians chapter 3, you can check it out. There's a whole, the whole chapter is awesome. One of my favorite in the whole of the Bible. Super practical and helpful, like it was written for us. Verse 5, he says to people who care about knowing God, he says, you've got to put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. He says, we got some bad stuff in us. You do. The person you might be watching this with, they got bad stuff in them just like you do. And the goal isn't to hide it or try to keep it under control or prevent it from slipping out. The goal is to put it to death and let God birth something new inside of you and me that will come out so that you treat people differently. Verse 7 says, now you used to do a bunch of stuff like this when your life was still part of the world. He says, but now You've tasted the Lord's goodness and grace. So, of course, before you were going to devour each other and be ugly and pour gas on the fire. But now, he says, some actions and attitudes need to become past tense for us. And he, and, and he speaks right into the age of outrage and spells out a kind of ethics for all of us on social media and engaging in political discussion. Verse 8 says, now is 
the time to get rid of anger and rage. Some of us need to decide today you're going to get rid of it. Malicious behavior, get rid of it, he says. That means just being mean. Slander, where you just say whatever you want, forward whatever you want. Don't fact check. Where you care more about holding up your party than you do about the truth. Stop it, he says. Dirty language, get rid of it. And don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature with all of its wicked deeds. Scripture says this stuff is wicked. It calls it wicked. And we take it off like an old shirt, and then he says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and, listen, become like him. We're representatives of God. And if you think, well, that's nice that he could say all that, but we got big issues today, like big division and all that niceness doesn't work in the real world. Listen, if you think that, you don't know your Bible at all because they had intense divisions, ethnic barriers and and all, all this stuff that was in their world, racism and classism and sexism. But Paul says he's talking to believers here who had now come together and found a new identity that superseded all those other identities. And that new identity leads to a new function. Identity leads to function. Paul says, remember who you are because it'll shape how you act and that is going to impact how you treat people. Look at verses 11 to 15. In this new life as a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, that's your identity, you must therefore clothe yourselves with, here, here's the function, tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If you know God, you bring the blue bucket to the fire because that's who he is. He goes on to say, make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And the peace that comes from Christ is in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace and always be thankful. So here's where Christians, you know, instead of saying, well, I've put all these things to death and God has birthed this beautiful new stuff in me. Instead of saying, I'm changing my clothes and I put on all this kindness and gentleness and patience and civility, too often we're joining in the fray, y'all. It seems like everyone's unable to tolerate anyone whose views diverge from their own these days. And the results of representing Christ by pouring on gas speak for themselves. Instead of displaying the winsome attractiveness of Jesus that draws people, we come with more explosions and everybody runs the other direction. And there's a lot of people who really need God, but who want nothing to do with Jesus, not because they're offended by the claims of Christ, but because sometimes we act like jerks. You can't treat people like garbage and then Expect anyone to take you seriously when you say, oh, but I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian. You want some of this joy I have? It doesn't work that way. For the Christian, civility is important because it's built on the notion that every human has dignity and worth because they're a person created in the image of God. And without this, we can just reduce people to their avatars on the screen, right? We just equate them with a label or a political position. Dallas Willard says that one of the darkest sins is contempt, where we so disdain another person that we deem them 
unworthy of respect. When we find someone contemptible, we think they're disgusting. Disgusting reminds me when I used to work at camp back in the day. It's kind of gross, but I'll tell you, one of my worst jobs was we have to lift a septic tank and stir it sometimes. It's big, disgusting soup, gallons and gallons of just waste. Nothing makes you want to go near it at all. When we allow ourselves to feel essentially the same way about any person or certain people or groups, they disgust me. I want nothing to do with them. And it creates distance. We want to go the other way and they from us. And it makes talking and sharing the truth and the love of Jesus impossible. The opposite of love is not hate, it's disgust or contempt. Because it convinces me that this person is not really a person, they're just this thing that disagrees with me. They're just a viewpoint, they're a fool, they're wrong rather than someone created in the image of God. So we've got a crisis of contempt, don't we? And what we need is more Christians who will lead the way in demonstrating kindness and civility and disagreeing in ways that honor God. Now, let me take a little sidebar here to talk about anger because I think one of the reasons a lot of Christians end up pouring gas on the fire is because we're convinced that our outrage is righteous anger. Now, there is very much a thing called righteous anger. God's people are called to feel about sin the same way God does. So, you know, when humans mis are mistreated or oppressed, when God cares about that. When human dignity is violated, when systems are so corrupt and people are trampled or treated badly, when, when processes are, are so broken that it destroys life, God cares about that. And if we become numb or apathetic, or fail to get angry at those things, that's actually a problem. And it sometimes takes some people who rise up against the status quo to say, this is not okay. Some of, the, some of the most important reforms in the history of the church and society have come because enough people got angry enough and said, enough is enough, whether it's slavery or sex trafficking, homelessness, whatever. So there are injustices in the world that anger God and they ought to anger us. And Corrupt systems don't get toppled by everyone just going along to get along. There's a time and a place for righteous anger to be expressed. Here's the problem. Everybody seems to think my outrage is always righteous anger. And therefore, I'm justified in expressing my anger however I want, whenever I want. So I'm bringing gas to this fire. Because after all, my issue is important. This is right. You're wrong. Something needs to be done. I'm representing God. I'm upholding the truth because my anger is always righteous. Here's the thing. Newsflash, not all anger is righteous. For it to be righteous, it's got to be righteous. And too many Christians are unthinkingly unleashing outrage at their personal offense or about their political convictions or their slant on the police or race or government or global warming or immigration and a host of other very important issues. By dumping gas on the fire, and as the flames rise up, they walk away like some scene out of a movie, feeling their anger was so righteous. Now, God's anger is always intertwined with his holiness. Is your anger the result of your holiness, your concern for the things of God? Is it coming out of a place of Eagerness to see God's name lifted up or offense that your name has been put down. Righteous anger is always directed toward the things that anger God. It's not based on our tribe being dissed or personal insult. 
You want to know if your anger is righteous, you got to ask, does it mirror the way God gets angry? There is an anger of God, a righteous indignation, but listen, it flows from his love and faithfulness. And Ed Stetzer says, if your anger isn't consistently tempered by that steadfast love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness of God, well, then it's not like God and it's not righteous anger. So we all love to claim we're angry about God's causes and we're standing up for him, but if you want to earn the responsibility of displaying God's anger to the world, you need to demonstrate that you can be a faithful vessel of his steadfast love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness first. Folks, listen, anyone can get angry. It's not hard. Anyone can vent and spew and dump gas on the fire. But being angry in the way that God is angry is very different. That's why James 1 says, you know, we've got to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. That's the same description of God. It says human anger, the kind we have sometimes, doesn't produce good things, righteousness that God desires. Think about your anger and reflect on it a little bit. Maybe we can see the difference between the righteous anger of God and human outrage, which sometimes comes out of us. So righteous anger is aimed at the glory of God, but human outrage is aimed at defending ourselves. Not all anger is sin, but some is. And the Bible says it actually gives the devil a foothold. Outrage wants to punish or destroy. It doesn't care what gets blown up in the process. It wants to put people in their place. But God's purpose is always to reconcile and ultimately bring people together to each other and to God. Outrage is denigrating to those you disagree with. I know Christians who oppose abortion, but if they then turn around and call everyone who's pro-choice a baby murderer, that's not going to lessen the divide or advance the conversation. When we label anyone who has questions about policing an anarchist or someone with a different view of healthcare, a communist, when someone doesn't subscribe to my views and I just denigrate them, it may feel good in the moment and I may believe I've put them in their place, but really I've just poured gas on the fire. It doesn't help anything, most of all, the cause of Christ. Now, there are lots of tough issues out there. We need to be engaged in them and, and in lots of ways and dialogue about it. We're going to disagree, but we need to have civil, substantive discussion and bring into the public square the light of Christ. That's what salt and light means. Outrage doesn't care about any of that. It just wants to tear down the opposition. And that's why instead of letting all that ugliness get into us and then spill out of us, we're called to walk in the light as he is in the light and to let that light shine through the civility and kindness of Christ. See, this anger thing's kind of slippery. We got to pay attention. When, when Jesus was teaching his disciples, he referred to the Ten Commandments and he said, you know where it says, do not murder. And they're like, yeah. He's like, that's a good one. <laughs> okay. But it's only scratching the surface, he says, because what's more important is what's inside you. Like whether you're really filled with God's nature and whether his kindness is going to come out of you. Like, and that's going to be evident in how you treat people. So how you treat people is just as important as refraining from homicide is what he's saying. Not killing each other physically is not enough, people. You, you think because you haven't shot someone with a gun that you're all square with the Lord. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. He wants to know, I want to know why you're angry. What's going on inside of you toward that person? Is it contempt? Is it disgust? If you call someone an idiot, he says, you call someone a fool. Well, you're, you're in danger there. 
Yeah, and if you curse out someone, you're in danger there with the very fires of hell. The inward state of our hearts, if it results in insulting and raging against others, it's still intensely ungodly. And he puts it on a par with the continuum of murder. And in those moments, we're forgetting who we are and we're certainly not acting like it. So we need to confront the lie that all outrage is righteous anger. Philippians 4 after calling us to joy, says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. I was reading a Christian's blog where people entered into the discussion in the comment section and someone was getting kind of disagreeable and stepped over the line and leveled an ad hominem attack. You know what that means, ad hominem? Instead of critiquing the position, he attacked the person. That's ad hominem. Instead of criticizing the content of the point, he got caustic about that person's character. Instead of saying, I have a different idea and here's why, he declared, you're an idiot. You see the difference? When we criticize content, we're arguing about ideas. And you can do that with civility and with kindness and with regard for others and their point of view, even while maintaining your conviction and holding your ground. But when you move to attacking someone, picking at their character, globalizing what a kind of person they are, going after them, judging them with contempt. That's different. There was a person in the comments section who didn't do that, and he let it rip. And what ensued was these two Christians who were going at it now, slinging mud and zingers. And below them in the comments section came a remark from another reader. It said, wow, you Christians are so stupid. I thought your Jesus was better than that. And the part that just gutted me was that phrase, your Jesus. Because it's pretty clear that reader didn't want anything to do with that kind of Jesus. You know what? Neither do I, honestly. And I wonder if it might have been enough to prevent that reader from ever being able to say that he knows the Lord as, as my Jesus. If the way you argue results in driving away people that Jesus sent you to reach and love, I don't care how self-justified you think you are, or how righteous you think your anger is, or how convinced you are that you're sent by God to pour that gasoline, you're doing it wrong. And for Christ's sake, you should stop it. Whatever you do, Colossians 3 says, you're doing it as a representative of Christ. So my friends, think before you post, let the Spirit filter your words, the golden rule should apply even on the internet, and when you're all heated up, you don't know how to act. Frederick Buechner reminds us, although kindness is not the same thing as holiness, it's awfully close. Be kind. A couple years ago, comedian Sarah Silverman was the victim of this brutal, awful verbal attack on social media. It was Twitter, and this guy called her a horrible name. It's so profane, I'm not going to repeat it. It's pretty easy when that happens to fire something back or to block that person or just maybe try to ignore it. Mostly when that happens, people lash back and we match the outrage with some of our own, get a better zinger, win. And Silverman, she didn't do that. Instead, she responded with this astonishing grace and compassion. She asked the man why he'd lashed out, asked if he was okay, asked if there was something going on in his life and he opened up about some pain. And they kept going back and forth, and there was a bridge built. And this guy 
And she had this amazing conversation in front of everyone. And she said, I believe in you. And she encouraged him to get some therapy and she helped her, her other followers fund it for him. And faced with that kind of kindness and this unexpected, surprising, amazing grace, the man apologized and agreed to go for help and said, I'm really thankful for Sarah Silverman. <laughs> That's radical. That's way cooler than bashing him and getting the last word in. It's countercultural. It's the kind of thing that comes out of the blue bucket. And I don't think Silverman's a Christian. I don't really know anything about her. I don't know her worldview or I don't, I don't even know her comedy even. But I know this, what she did in that instance looks a lot like Jesus and Jesus' people who have the identity that he's given us as his kids need to look like that too. To demonstrate civility in an angry and hostile world. And I hope he can count on you.